invite you to turn to the Song of Solomon this morning, Song of Solomon chapter 8, if you find the prophecy of Isaiah, and then work back <clears throat> from there, you'll come immediately to the Song of Solomon, and we're in the 8th chapter. We have been going through this book as part of our meditation during seasons of communion, remembering the Lord's table and observing it. So we come again, and we're getting close to the end of the book. We have made our way through from the beginning to the last chapter now, and the focus of our attention will be verses 8 through 10. But we will read again from verse 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 5. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. We have a little sister, and she hath no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she shall be spoken for? If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. And if she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I am a wall. My breasts like towers, then was I in his eyes as one that found favor. Amen. And may the Lord bless his word to us. Let's still ourselves before the Lord again, beloved. Let's look to him for his help as he, we need to hear from him as we come to his table and remember what he has done on our behalf. Lord, we are thankful that Thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to give deliverance to the captives, to break oppression, to set men free. And many of us here this morning can testify of Thy delivering grace. And we want so much for everyone we know to experience the same, because death is coming for us all. And we think today of Gloria and Mark and Gloria's wider family and the sudden passing of her brother. God, we would ask that thou would have mercy. We pray for comfort for Gloria. We pray for strength as they make their way there and renew their ties with the family as they spend time with the family, as they mourn the loss. We pray that thou wilt comfort and we ask that even this providence might remind all of us that, as David said, there is but a step between me and death. Oh God, even we're already thinking about tonight's message and what thou wilt say to us in that regard, but we think of what's here before us this morning and pray that help may be given and that thou wilt put a light upon thy word and make our hearts responsive to all that it says. So teach us thy ways and fill this preacher with the Holy Ghost 
and wisdom that comes from above, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember the occasion when our Lord Jesus overturned the money changers when he went into the temple? In fact, we know that that happened on two occasions, but if you recall that time in his ministry when he went in and flipped over the tables and showed his indignation on that occasion, there was at least a twofold grievance that he expressed to what was going on. And for those grievances, he quotes two passages of Scripture. He highlights and underlines what it is predominantly that was bothering him in what he observed in the, what was happening in the particular area of the temple at that time. He quotes in one place, Isaiah 56, verses 7 and 8, "'My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations.'" And then he also quotes, alludes to, Jeremiah 7, verse 11, "'You have made it a den of thieves. You've made the house of God, you've made this place a den of thieves.'" The first grievance then was that this activity was a misuse of the temple court. This place where they gathered and exchanged, where they dealt in this form of commerce of providing animals for those who were coming from afar and needed sacrifices to participate in the worship, that's happening in a place where prayer ought to be offered. In fact, a place designated welcome and inviting to strangers where foreigners could come in, at least to that part of the temple, where they could experience something of the temple and seek the Lord, even if they were not entirely brought to an understanding of all things at this stage. And the second grievance, of course, was that instead of welcoming the stranger and having a place where prayer could be offered for them, there's this commercial activity. And of course, while there were reasons why they might provide this, why they might do what they did, yet it was a wrong use of that space. And it grieved the Lord. So again, our Lord Jesus says, you've made this a den of thieves. This place, the heart of this city, Jerusalem, this place where worship is, this place that is the most mature spiritual place on earth, is not welcoming to the most needy. Our Lord then didn't take too kindly to it. Israel had become dull. Dull in many ways, but dull, in this instance, dull to the burden of the need of the nations around them. Their taking of the court of the Gentiles and turning it into a place of commerce for the need of Jews who were coming in from afar was a was a reflection of their lack of heart and lack of burden for those yet to understand the gospel. In all their growth, amidst all their light, all their history, all their knowledge, they were dull to the needs of those around them. And this is a danger. It is a danger to all believers. And when we come to the portion that we're looking at this morning, verses 8 through 10, we will learn afresh of the kind of burden that we are to have for those that don't have what we have, that don't know what we know. We looked at the verses preceding last time, last month, and you may look at it and wonder, well, what's the relationship between verses 6, 7, verses 6 and 7 and then into 8? 
where there's this speaking about love and the intense union that there is between Christ and His people. And then it goes on in verse 8 to go on that we have a little sister and so on. And John Gill, remarking on this transition, says, Christ and His spouse, having sufficiently confirmed their love to each other and agreed it to be on both sides strong as death and inviolable, they are here in these verses like a loving husband and his wife consulting together about their affairs and considering what they should do. That's how family affairs go, you know. It's not just, you know, my way or the highway with husbands and fathers making no consultation with their wives or looking to the needs of their children. John Gill's right. There's, there's, there's a correspondence here about what needs to be done as they go forward. And what Gill then continues to say as he looks at these verses, verses 8, 9, and 10, he says, he said, this may be understood as spoken by the Jewish church concerning the Gentile world. The Jewish church is looking at the Gentile world and its great need. And so I've entitled my message this morning, The Jewish Church's Hope for a Gentile Sibling. The Jewish Church's Hope for a Gentile Sibling. That's the language that we have here in verses 8 and following. We have a sister, and she hath no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she shall be spoken for? If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. And if she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts like towers. Then was I in his eyes as one that found favor. So this is the passage for our meditation this morning, beloved, and I trust it will be of encouragement to us as we think of it in this way, that here you have the, Genti- the, the, the Jewish church at this point in time in the Old Covenant era, they, they are in this relationship with God, and they are, it's perceived as this marriage, and spiritually then they have these burdens and these needs. And so it's reflected throughout this book, and the heart of it all is communion. And here the communion is, well, well, what do we do? What do we do? What is the call of our lives? So first then, note with me, her hope expressed. Her hope expressed. And her hope is expressed in verse 8. And there are a number of things I want us to note in verse 8. Please follow along in the Word of God with us. First of all, she knows of her existence. The Jewish church knows of the existence of the Gentile church. We have a little sister. We have a little sister. This is an expression that underlines the fact that the Jewish church in her right state, properly thinking, understanding her call and her position in the world, knows that the Lord has an intention, has the desire, is going to gather in a people beyond themselves. There is a little sister, as it were. It speaks of one that in one sense is already part of the family. Now, we have to be careful there because we don't want to enter into some erroneous idea of eternal justification, as if those included in the language of a little sister means they've been saved throughout the entire time, from eternity past, as it were, to eternity future. That's not the sense of it. But, but the Bible does underscore for us a sense in which the Lord has a people. He has a people. It was expressed even in the Psalms. We read this morning, providentially, Psalm 135. The Lord has chosen Jacob. He chooses a people for himself. And in this instance, this old covenant people are recognizing that there are others that need to be gathered in. 
turn for a moment to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, our Lord Jesus is, launches into a great discourse of Him being the Good Shepherd. And it's relevant to the context because in the previous chapter, a man has been excommunicated, the blind man, who would not give up on his claim that of, of what he knew Jesus had done for him. And as he held his resolve, he gets cast out, excommunicated from the Jewish church. And this all then feeds into Jesus Christ fulfilling what Ezekiel prophesied of an, a shepherd who would come who would rightly care for the sheep. And Jesus Christ then plays that role, and He claims Himself to have that role as the Good Shepherd. And He makes various observations about them, the sheep, and them being called in and gathered into Him, and so on and so forth. But go down to verse 16. He says, "'Other sheep I have which are not of this fold.'" Now, understand that language. There are others that aren't yet in. There are others that are mine but haven't yet been gathered. Them also I must bring. They shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Our Lord Jesus undergirds here the fact that He is one people, but that people are scattered across the world. And He's here in the context. He is ministering to the house of Israel, and He's preaching the gospel to them. And they have, as it were, first refusal as He comes as the Messiah to them. But it's not going to stay there. It never was intended to stay there. Even prior to His arrival, there was a recognition that this should be going out to the world. And it did in a certain, in a certain way at certain stages. For example, during Solomon's era, there was a great spreading of an understanding of the truth being centralized and stemming from Jerusalem and Israel. But many times it was obscured by the apostasy of Israel. And the Lord Jesus comes, and yes, I'm, I'm coming, I'm giving you a call, a call to me, a call to repent, a call to believe, to gather into the kingdom. But don't think it's limited. Don't think it's limited to just here. There are others I must bring. And just as you have heard my voice, they will hear my voice, and you'll all be gathered into one fold, and you'll all have one shepherd. Go to the next chapter, John 11, where we have a very unusual and yet remarkable event that takes place <clears throat> when Caiaphas prophesies. He is the high priest. John 11, verse 49, as things come to a head and they're wondering what should be done, read John 11, verse 49, one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. Now, who are the people? Well, the people are Israel. It's, they're the people. It's understood. The, these are the covenant people. And that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, but not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God, that were scattered abroad. So there is this, this understanding that Christ has come to take the place, to die, to offer Himself without spot onto a people even beyond this nation. He is dying for them, the children of God scattered abroad. I, I can't take time. But on occasion when you 
deal with people who have a, a problem with the doctrine of election and the fact that Christ died for a particular people, one of the passages they will go to is 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. That He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And they say, there He is. He's, he's dying for everyone indiscriminately. That's what the verse says. But it was really fascinating. If you take 1 John 2, verse 2, and you pair it along with this passage here in John 11, the same, the same human writer, you will find a correlation where, as Caiaphas is saying, one should die for the people, that he should be the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only. And whereas in 1 John 2, verse 2, it says for the sins of, of the world, here it is referred to as the children of God that are scattered abroad. There's a pulling together of language. And the, the whole theme, what, what you have in 1 John 2, 2, is just really a, a, a tightened version of, of John 11. What you have here in these verses is just pulling it together. Only in one place it's the world, another place it's the children of God scattered abroad. They're all over in all nations. So the world doesn't have to mean everyone indiscriminately. It is as it is here, the children of God scattered abroad. And yet they're not yet brought in. They haven't yet heard the call. They haven't effectually been drawn. But Christ has a people. This experience, which is hard for us to really revert back to. It's, you know, the gospel is spread throughout the nations. We take it for granted as Gentile people. But this was cataclysmic. This, this kind of launching of the gospel into the nations effectually in a way that had never been seen or witnessed before to the same degree. And when Peter oversaw the initial opening of the gospel to the Gentiles, and you read about that in Acts chapter 10. He comes and he reports what happened in Cornelius' household on that occasion. In Acts chapter 11, the summary of it, the response of the, the church to what Peter records in Acts 11 verse 18, it says, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. This is being known. What he has done for us, he has done for them. It is evident they held their peace and glorified God. They're, they're stunned into silence. And then they, they, they erupt in praise. They're thankful. And Paul then carries on this ministry. Peter, largely, though he opens the door, his ministry remains largely confined to the Jewish people. But Paul, he goes out eventually and carries on his missionary journeys to the to much of the known world at that time. And he records after his first missionary journey, we're, we're told in Acts 14, 27, when they were come together and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. This, this singular act, this, this monumental occasion, this, this recognition that Christ's person and work is being received indiscriminately in terms of nationality. It's going to people who are scattered abroad and they're being gathered in in a wonderful fashion, confirming what happened in Cornelius' home. 
And when he begins to write about it to the church at Ephesus, and they have their, this is, this is causing friction, you know, because you bring these people from different backgrounds together, and, and it's hard for them to get on. I mean, dear me, we, we fight among our family, don't we? <laughs> we argue among our own kith and kin. And now you bring in a mixture of cultures and understanding of how things are done or how life is lived, and you pull these Jews and Gentiles together, and it causes friction. Listen, struggles in the house of God, among the people of God, is not a new experience. And it can be caused by background and baggage that we bring from our heritage and nationality and the things we take for granted or that we don't understand. I mean, this is part and parcel of, of, of living among other people. But it doesn't mean we just look for the easy road and separate ourselves from, from people that we maybe sometimes struggle to really get on with and see eye to eye with. And so Paul's trying to massage the church into understanding what Christ has done and keep the bigger picture in view. Ephesians 2.16, Christ is our peace who hath made both one. Don't lose sight of that. He has made both one. One fold, one shepherd, united together, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And he carries on in the next chapter, Ephesians 3 verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel. They're all coming together. So, going back to Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 8, we have a little sister. She knows it. We have a little sister. We, we, there are others. There are others that aren't yet brought in. She knows of her existence. And rightly, she knows of it. The Old Testament is filled with references and pointers to the fact that, that God's intention isn't isolated just to Israel. It's going to extend. The very Abrahamic promises indicate that from the outset. But secondly, she knows of her immaturity. She knows of her immaturity. In this hope that she expresses in verse 8, she knows of her existence, but she also knows of her immaturity. She hath no breasts. She hasn't come to womanhood. She hasn't come to this point that, that I might say that the Jewish church could say she had come to. Now, when you read this language, I know. I know you're looking at it and saying, come on, preacher. Is that, this really what it's saying? Does God use His word and language like this? Or are you just, you know, using poetic license and preacher's imagination and, you know, is this really what Scripture teaches? Go to Ezekiel 16. Go to Ezekiel chapter 16. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, and I, I, I can't afford the time to read all of it, but I, I encourage you to read it. It's a tremendous portion of God's saving grace, of His intervention in the lives of sinners. But specifically in Ezekiel 16, it is... The language is, is pointed toward Israel and their experience. And I will take time to read some of the opening verses here. Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother an Hittite. Like, what was he, he's saying? 
Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget. You, you feel yourself to be so distinct by your own merit to the other nations. But the only difference between you and them is what I have done. And that becomes clear as you carry on. Verse 4, as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pity thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cut out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee, this is God's speaking of the, the weak and frail, feeble beginnings of of Israel's existence. When I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live! Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live! This is God coming and regenerating miraculous work upon this people, giving them a message of life. Verse 7, I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxen great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, and thine hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. And on and on it goes. It's imagery. It's imagery of, of her being brought to beauty and maturity by a divine act, by God's intervention. And then, of course, they apostatize, and they go away. And the Lord details that as well as you read on in the passage. And basically, it's this. You're nothing without me. You're nothing without me. Don't forget. Now, as going back to Song of Solomon, as the Jewish church reflects upon this sibling we have a little sister. She knows of her existence, but she also knows of her immaturity. She hath no breasts. She hasn't come to be. She hasn't come to the point, let's, let's put it this way, she has not come to the point where she is able to bear and nourish children. She is unable to bear and nourish children. She is not evangelizing the world. And she's not feeding the souls of men. She's not there yet. He's not there. But this is what the Lord had. This is what he was intending. Go to Isaiah 66. Just flip over a few pages in your Bible forward from Song of Solomon to Isaiah 66. And there's, there's, there's quite a bit here that could be reflected on, but... Look at verse 9. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. See that come and, and feed upon her, for thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. They're all going to be influenced. Then shall ye suck, and ye shall be borne upon her sides, and be dandled upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. 
And so you see what the Lord intends to do, gathering in, make mention of the Gentiles and the influence of Jerusalem upon her. She is able to, be, to, to feed, to nourish, to, to, to make an impact upon those around her. But at this point, the Gentiles are unable to do so. It's Jerusalem, it's Israel, it's the, it's the old covenant people of God, as it were, that, that are able. But she is reflecting, we have a little sister. She exists, but she hath no breasts. She's not able to bear children or, or nurse them. So that brings us then, as she expresses this hope, knowing of her existence, knowing of her immaturity, she knows of her need. Uh, expresses it here in the question, what shall we do for our sister in the day when she shall be spoken for? What are we going to do when she's called into marital union? What, what, what are we going to do for her? And the, here she recognizes that there's something she needs to do. The Jewish church has a responsibility. It sounds very much like, the language of this sounds very much like Acts 9, verse 6, when Paul's converted. And what does he say? What will they have me to do? What do you want me to do? And here the Jewish church is, is asking the same question, what are we to do? What are we to do? There is something that needs to be done. Paul asks, what am I to do? God calls him, be a light to the Gentiles. Be a light to the Gentiles. Reach these people. Go out after them. And that is a call we all must hear. Paul wasn't always on top of the mountain with this call. He, he wasn't always kind of going to places and thinking, you know, he was invincible or imagining that it was always going to be successful. He, he hoped for it. But there were times it was difficult and hard you see, you know a man not by his successes. You know a man by his, his character through trials. You know, it's, 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 when, it's when the going gets tough, the tough get going. It's that time. It's when things are hard. You really get to see the character of a person. And the Lord does not call us to always have it easy, not even for the mightiest people who have lived on this earth often they are brought through even greater trials. And sometimes Paul was brought to almost being silent. But again, that seems to be, I've mentioned it many times, but in Acts 18, that seems to be what the Lord is addressing when the Lord speaks to Paul in the night by a vision, be not afraid, but speak. Don't let fear silence you. Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And so it's underlining again, look, you're an instrument here. You are an instrument in gathering in the elect and bringing in my people that the, I have other sheep I have that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And you, Paul, are an instrument of bringing that to pass. If we lose that aspect of our purpose. We might as well shut up shop. We've been here a while. You've been worshiping here for long enough. We're not a church plant. We don't have that kind of excited experience of new church plant energy. And there is an energy that goes with a fresh church plant. There is. And everyone's full of hope and anticipation and expectation. 
But you can go along and you get to a point where you begin to just stagnate. And you have to fight it. The church plant has her struggles. And it's not easy. Church planting is not easy work. The freshness and all is there, but there, there are real struggles in it that they have to fight and the perseverance to keep going on amidst the discouragements that arise. But in, a, in an established church where you think that, well, you know, maybe not worried about meeting certain needs that we have month to month and so on, year to year, but there are other things to fight. And a kind of just a, a drifting along and losing a sense of why am I still breathing? I mean, why hasn't he called me to glory yet? Here the Jewish church in her spiritual state reflected in the Song of Solomon wants to be involved in helping the immature yet to be gathered in siblings. Those who are part of the same fold who haven't yet been brought into Christ. And she's not content to just watch on and have her own little comfort and the privileges. She wants to make them known and gather in others. And beloved, we, we need to keep that in mind now. We, we have ministries and there's outreach that goes on from this place. I'm thankful for it. But I'm thankful and yet constantly aware of the danger of just even our evangelistic efforts losing that sense of real anticipation and zeal and burden. That by mere conscientiousness and dedication to a work or a ministry. We keep going and we keep going and we keep going, but we've actually lost heart and burden. You know one way to, to know whether that's happened in your life? You can be involved in ministry, but, but you, you just ask myself, am I, do I still have a burden for souls? I do this evangelistic endeavor, and I do that evangelistic endeavor, and I help in these ways. Do you want to know how to test whether the zeal is really there? Do you, from day to day, at random occurrences and occasions, seek to say something to lost people that you meet? Outside the confines of a ministry, of a certain kind of, this is, I'm engaged in this and we go and bring the word to these people. Outside of that, do you look for opportunities to share the gospel in this quote-unquote random providence of, of God that, that come your way? Where you, This person who's just struck up a conversation with you and you don't know who they are and they ask your name and what you do for a living and you reply and you ask the same in return. Then, then what? Do you look for that opportunity to get a word in? To talk to them about their soul? To ask them, hey, have you ever read the Bible? Do you know who the Lord Jesus is? Do, do, do you know why he came? 
That's how you know. When we as a body are all doing that, like we're all engaging in random, I said quote-unquote, nothing random about it, God is opening doors and He's giving opportunity to His people. When we seize upon them, then that's a reflection upon genuine heart and passion. What can I do here? What can I do? And when months and months and months go by and you never talk to a soul, chances are you aren't really feeling the burden. You say, well, I'm doing the ministry. Yes, you are. But you're, you're seeing men, as it were, as trees walking. You can't really see the lost condition of their souls. Now listen, I speak as one who knows exactly what it's like to be there. Oh, preacher, surely you couldn't lose a sense of the need of men's souls. You preach the Word several times a week. And every Sunday evening you try to make a beeline of application to lost people, if not in the morning as well. Yes, yes. I do that because I get to sit back and meditate and think about how I can take this portion and apply it to the several needs of the congregation. I get to think about that and meditate about that, but what about the people, the people that I just bump into? Is my heart there? Do I see them? Do I see them? Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. So I imagine you're the same. I beg you, in Christ's name, do not lose. Do not lose this divine calling and purpose in your life. It is to point to Christ when opportunity arises. What shall we do? She knows she can't do it herself. What shall we do for our sister? What shall we do for the lost people, the elect? that are scattered abroad, Greenville. What shall we do? We need the Lord. We need to include Him, don't we? We can't do it ourselves. Not what I will do. It's what, what will we do? What will we do? We want to bring her, we want to bring her into this, this marriage union. Oh, so you have here her hope expressed. Secondly, her hope supported. Her hope supported. The Lord then replies, verse 9, If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. And if she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Here the Lord responds to the burden that is upon the church in this old covenant era, which should be our ongoing burden for all of us that are His people. The Lord responds, If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. If she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Now, there's different ways in which this could be taken, but the emphasis here, the emphasis of this text is, well, there's a number of things. I'll just say this. First of all, it uses language of building. It uses language of building. If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. If she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. There's language of building. And so the Lord then uses this language, we will build upon her. We will enclose her or surround her with boards of cedar. Language of building. And the Lord then responds, this is what we will do. She's asked, what shall we do? And he says, here's what we'll do. 
and the language is that of building. And this is language that is used in the Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, we are laborers together with God. We are laborers together with God. Now that implies something, child of God. That implies God is at work. And what is God doing? What is God doing? Well, He's doing many things. But what is He doing that He involves us in? Does He call upon you about whether or not to bring a storm? Does He call upon you about when to assign the moment of your death or someone else's death? No. No. He, he, he doesn't bring you into the council for, to discuss that. But He does involve you in something. He involves you in reaching the lost. He involves you in the Word going out. He involves you in ministry to those who are perishing. He involves you. We are co-laborers together with God. He involves you in ministry to the saints as well. Let me not miss out on that. Ministry to the saints is, is co-laboring together with God, endeavoring to be of encouragement to one another, to take an interest in one another. These things certainly are things the Lord calls us to. So we are laborers together with God. He uses language of building. We're building something. We're not destroying things. That's what the woman in Proverbs mentioned. She destroys her house. She destroys her. She's not involved in building. She destroys it. And some people are involved in that kind of work. But this is not what is mentioned here. The Lord is calling her, yes, you, what, what are we going to do? We're going to build. If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. If she be a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. So there's language of building. There's language of completion. In this language where there's building and construction, the idea is that of completing the work. For example, I mean, it's a little more difficult to understand the, if she be a wall, we'll build upon her palace of silver, this sense of like a tower going up. There's a completion of it that's involved in that language, but you see it certainly with the door. If she be a door, we're not just going to leave her as a door, we're going to surround her with boards of cedar. We're going to complete it. So it is what it's meant to be. It's not just a door, but it's surrounded and it's... it's it has its proper place and properly supported in everything, every way that's necessary. So it's the language of completion. The work, the work will be done. So if we describe her in this way, we're going to complete the work. Now the Lord is involved in this, completing the work. What are you thinking about? God completing the work. Hopefully your mind could go quickly to Philippians 1 verse 6. He which hath begun a good work will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is in the business of beginning and completing the work. And so this language has a sense of the work will be complete. We're going to reach out. We're going to gather in this immature, this body for whom Christ has died. We're going to call her into the one fold to have one shepherd. And we're not going to leave her halfway. We're going to complete the work. That's wonderful. It is. I think I've used this illustration before, but it's so good it bears repeating. And it's tied into Philippians 1 verse 6 and what the Lord does. And so I'm, I'm using it so that you remember. When you think that the Lord is going to forget about you are only going to do half the work necessary, I want you to remember this. When I was building, or helping a builder, I should say, construction work, I was 18, I think, at the time, the builder I worked for made mention of another builder who had a bit of a reputation. 
And I, I knew the man. I, I knew who he was. I, 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 I knew him because, I used to, because prior to that I used to work, and you don't know what this game is. It's called snooker, right? You have billiards and you have pool, but you don't know what snooker is. It's when you take a, a kind of billiard table and you make it 12 feet long and 6 feet wide, and the balls are all different, whatever. Anyway, I'll not get down there. It's a very kind of UK thing. Um, not many people are interested across the world, but there are a few. But I used to work at what we call a snooker club, and this particular man would come and play. So I knew who he was. And he had a reputation. As a builder, he had a reputation of not finishing the job. He would take on a contract. Foundations might get laid. And he would build up the block work to a certain height. Now, we talk about window sills. That the kind of sill height, so it's coming up to where the windows begin to be put in. That's the sill height of the structure. And so such was his reputation of not finishing the work, he got the nickname Sami Sill Height, because that's as far as he would get. He would never finish the job. He was called Sami Sill Height. That's an awful way to be thought of in, in your employment. You know, like who's, <laughs> who's going to sign a contract with somebody who never finishes the job? And I always remember thinking about that when I, when I was meditating on, on Philippians 1, verse 6. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will not stop. He will not halt. He will not pause. He will not take vacation and never come back. He will not go AWOL. He will finish the work. And so this language, verse 9, of what he is responding to her, is idea, that idea is involved in it. The, the work will be completed. Not just leave her as a door, we'll surround her with boards of cedar. But also, Christ uses language of enduring. Language of enduring. Because he refers to palace of silver and boards of cedar. These are things that last. Right? They last. They, they stand the test of time. Silver endures. There, whatever silver's been in the world, still, as far as I'm aware, is still here in some form or fashion. Though it may be alloyed in some way, it's, it's still there. It doesn't, it doesn't just evaporate and go away. And cedar, too. Cedar is known as that, that, that a wood that lasts. Right? Pay extra to build your deck because you don't want to do it every five or ten years. You make it out of cedar wood. It lasts. And this, this is language of enduring. And what Christ is going to do for the little sister, what the, the encouragement is to the, the, the zealous Jewish church burdened for this yet-to-be-gathered-in part of the fold, Christ is saying there will be an enduring work. And are we not evidence of it? 2,000 years since Christ came, lived, died, rose again, ascended to the Father's right hand, 2,000 years of global evangelization, missionary work to the nations, 2,000 years of hard graft, getting the Word, translating the Scriptures, planting churches, catechizing children, doing what we can to influence our generation. 2,000 years! And there had been one generation where it all rotted, and fell away, you might not be here. 
you needed someone to pass it on to you. You needed someone to remain faithful. You needed Christ to endure, give enduring grace to his church. And the Gentile church has stood the test of time. She continues. Praise his name. We hope it continues to continue, don't we? Is that not part of our lot? Make sure it continues. You parents, do you have a higher calling? Do you? Make sure it endures by the grace of God. Don't let it be said it was your negligence, your indifference, your coldness, your lack of vision, your lack of burden, your lack of heart. It failed to meaningfully pass on to your children the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, very quickly, her hope is bolstered. Her hope is bolstered. In verse 10, I am a wall, and my breast like towers. Then was I in his eyes as one that found favor. There are a couple of ways I read that different men take this. Uh, John Gill, for example, sees this actually as the sister responding. So this is the little sister, and she is now speaking and saying, I am a wall, and my breast like towers, and I was in his eyes as one that found favor. Maybe, maybe that's the case. The other way of looking at it is that it's a response of the Jewish church. And she is responding, recognizing that what Christ has said has been lived out already in her experience. She also is a wall. And the Lord has built upon her. And she has come to maturity. Her breasts are like towers. That is, she is able to bear and nourish. And she has that calling. She has come to that. And so her hope for the sibling, her hope for the yet to be gathered in and fully brought to maturity. All the nations of this world who are to be engulfed into the same covenant. Her hope is bolstered by the knowledge of what the Lord has done for her. When you go out and preach the gospel, it would be a sad thing to try and preach to men what you don't believe you've experienced yourself. Preach the forgiveness of sins, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, while you're in spiritual turmoil, wondering whether or not you're saved. That's a very weak footing in which to proclaim the gospel. But that's not where you are. At least it ought not to be where you are. It's good news because you know it to be good news. You don't need to be convinced of it. You've already been convinced of it. And you know it. Christ died for me. He died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. He beckons them to come to him to drink of the water of life that he freely gives. And so she looks, I'm a wall. And, and there's this idea, this language, my breasts are like towers. There's, there's been a building up of my tower. I've been brought to strength and maturity. I was in his eyes as one that found favor. I received this. And there's this hope, this, this, this bolstering of the hope that he will yet do the same for those yet to be gathered in. Do we not have hope? Do we? Are, we, are, we, are we kind of feeling like I have found favor and no one else will? Or do we go to a world and say, there's favor, there's favor for you. Christ died for sinners. 
And you can experience the favor of God if you only believe. If you only believe. And that is the favor we've experienced. Why are we sitting here at this table? We have obtained favor, haven't we? Can you not say it? Oh, where would you be today if he had not intervened? I was in his eyes as one that found favor. Or as it could be translated, peace. You found peace. Didn't you? You found peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. So we sit at this table having peace with God. Christ, we were looking at it in Leviticus with the young people this morning. The offerings that, that the priests sit down, fellowship. The fellowship means of the Levitical offerings. Where they sit down and they eat together. The peace offerings in which, which they're to invite others to come and participate in these thanksgiving offerings. And, and it comes back and you're to participate together in the peace offering. You have peace. And others are to enjoy it as well. All, all that we would, we would understand we've found favor to sit and sob joyfully this morning that we've found favor. What have you that you have not received? Nothing. You've found favor. He set his love on you. And you were like, you were exactly like the church, Ezekiel 16. You, you were nothing. You were bloody and despised and everyone passes by on the other side. But I came by and I said, live. Live. Why? Why? Why you? Why me? He passed by. There we were in a career to hell. And he said, Live. Live. I was, then was I in his eyes as one that found favor. We muse on that this morning as we sit at the table of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Impart to us a spirit of praise and worship. And let that praise be such that it cannot be contained. For there are countless multitudes that are perishing around us. And it's very easy for us to be at ease in Zion. Save us from ourselves. Give us a real zeal. For thou hast set thy love on us. As we prayed earlier, we have not chosen thee, but thou hast chosen us. Called us by thy grace and said, Thou art mine. Help us then as a people to truly communicate this to a perishing world that others might taste and see that the Lord is good. O Lord Jesus, sit with us at this table. Be be the host of this season. Nourish us 
with these emblems by faith, we pray in Jesus' name.